Tonight is Wednesday night, May the 19th, 2004, and praise God, glad to be here. Hallelujah. Pastor Eric and uh, brother in the Lord Gary Williams are in Israel, and I was informed, uh, this is right, today is the, or yesterday, yesterday was the 50th anniversary of the liberation of the wall, yeah, six days of war which Eric was able to celebrate at the wall. Yeah, 30,000 people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, but praise God. Um, about, hello, pick it up. About two weeks ago, whenever I found out I was going to have a, a series to preach, <laughs> uh, I didn't have to pray much about it. Jesus laid it on my heart, and then the direction I want to go. We're going to study the book of James, chapter by chapter. So, if everyone could turn to the book of James, be a good start. It's fast. I promise you it's fast. Well, un- unlike last Sunday, I was able to, like, I have a, a section where I put my personal notes. And in that personal note, I can type in the, the reference scripture. And all I have to do here is double-click on it, and it automatically pulls it up. Ooh, ah, ah, ah. So, yeah. All right, James chapter 1. Now, I guess I kind of give the, the idea of the time frame that this is going on. And obviously, everybody knows, everybody knows that this James is not James, brother of John. He is James, the brother of Jesus. There's a couple of different places that, uh, where that is referenced. And it, you really have to piece the, uh, the, the puzzle together in the word. Uh, but I think in, I'm not going to get too much in detail of who exactly James was. But uh, basically in, in the, the Gospels it mentions some of his brothers and sisters, uh, which are also Jesus' brothers and sisters, and also the same aunt. So, James 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations... Greetings. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Now, because we're studying the whole chapter by itself, we want to kind of break down each individual scripture. And there's, James is action-packed. It's got a lot of good nuggets in almost each individual scripture itself. So, let me go with this. If everyone could please turn to Mark 6. Everybody, all 8,000 of you, go ahead. <laughs> yes, it will. So just hold your place right there, Mark 6. 
uh, while doing some research on the, the different, first of all, the different versions. We have King James Version, we have NIV. King James Version and is, the majority, is the version that we memorize for the majority of the Scripture in, such as, you know, trust in the Lord with all ye heart and lean out on ye own understanding. A lot of the archaic language in the King James. Well, moving to the NIV, I read the scripture, but I still have it memorized in the King James. Right here in verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brother. Normally in the King James Version, it would say consider it all joy. So that's one of the first flags that went off at me and say, let me find out exactly why. Why is that different? So doing some research in, or in the background, uh, what, what James was specifically after, and this is, uh, never mind. What James was specifically after was he was stating, consider it nothing but joy. Pure is the more accurate term. All can work. It, it does mean consider everything joy. But pure is the more accurate. For the sole fact, pure is what? Purity is absence of any foreign object besides itself. If salt is 99% salt, that means that only 1% of that is something other than salt. If, if joy is pure, 99%, then there's only 1% that is not. So what James is, is referencing to or trying to emphasize, consider it nothing but joy, excluding everything else. And that may have to be something that we forcibly do in order to achieve that pure joy, driving out the things that try to rob us of it or that counter it or, or try to totally take it away. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Doing a little more research into the next part, that word trials is what we're going to tie right here into Mark 6. Uh, comes from the Greek word parisimos. <laughs> For those of you who like strong, uh, Strong's numbers, it's 3986. It's more for the Tate people than the people out here. <laughs> but what this, what this term trials means is that it is putting to the proof. If you look back, well, I'll say that for more. But what it means by putting to the proof is that you experiment it. You put it to uh, within an experiment such as if I were to find out, once again, the purity of a certain object in, in a chemical state, I would boil it down. I perform some type of process. I want to prove or find out how pure an element really is. So an experiment in a good sense, more of an experience as far as a, an, a wicked one. So when we see this word trials, first thing that comes to my mind would be fighting my flesh in combination with fighting the outside resistance of normal spiritual warfare. Uh, and it, it's very clear in the word whenever these guys are talking that they really differentiate the, the two. One can be external, the other can be internal. The one he's talking about right here is external trials, not necessarily the internal trials. So ingrain that in your brain. When you read the scripture, he's referencing to external trials. Uh, Mark 6, 
So they went away by themselves, and this is the disciples. Jesus had put them in a boat and sent them off, and he went away to a lonely place. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? More than likely, how how much you bet that this is just my hypothetical guess that that was Judas. He was the keeper of the money bag. And he was always the one squabbling about money being spent on frivolous things. When actual sense, it was Jesus trying to to demonstrate something uh, to the disciples and to, also to the people. How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five loaves and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in the groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up into heaven He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Two. It would have been one thing if it may have been 20. Our natural eye, from from what I can gather, can really only visually see and count without having to one, two, three, four, five it. Seven. Around seven. Maybe some, some people a little bit less, some people a little bit more. That's just a personal average throughout mankind. So if I see three items, I know that's three. If I see six, I know that's six. Well, it would have been one thing if it was 20 fish. You say, well, they broke and it would have been lesser of a miracle. That's what I'm getting at. These were only two fish. There's no mistaking that this was a dynamic miracle. Just two. And then five loaves as well. So well beneath what would normally be something for, let's say, 50 or 60 people. More like two or three. When then Jesus directed them to have all the people... I read that. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up the twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten were were five thousand. Five thousand men, more than likely... Every single one of those guys at least had a wife and maybe a kid. If, if, if not every single guy, for the majority, they had, they had wives with them. So it's 5,000 men, so you may be looking at about 8,000, 9,000 people total. Um, so this is more, more than a testimony than what it really seems to be here. But obviously it's for the, the reader to understand. Verse 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd, after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars, because the wind 
was against them. That's the key verse. Referencing that back to verse 2 of James 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Remember that word trials is from an external sense and not an internal? That very word parallels this word using here, or, or the, the use of it. The disciples were straining at the oars. Why? Because this external source was in direct opposition to what they were trying to do, the goal they were trying to achieve. I looked up the King James Version of that. Instead of straining, King James Version uses toil. I began to dig a little bit more. The Webster's Dictionary defines toil in several different ways, but one of the ways is it means to put to the touchstone. Remember how we said earlier that word uh, uh, trial meant to putting to the proof by experiment? That's exactly what this word toil meant in the Webster's Dictionary. You took gold, and to test the purity of gold, you had put to a certain uh, touchstone, a certain type of, of rock. And based upon how it struck on that rock, you could determine the, the, the percentage or the amount of purity within that gold. But you had to strike it against the rock to put it to proof. In the same instance here, what Jesus was doing, he sent them out by themselves. He, he probably more likely knew by the Spirit that they were going to receive opposition. In fact, he watched them. Let's read further on. About the fourth night of the watch, a fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. I'll stop right there. They had just seen what? 5,000 men, plus more women and children, get fed by the very miracle he just performed. So they see the natural blessings. They see God move. Next thing you know... That faith that they may have had in him at that point in time was then put to the touchstone. Okay, guys, you believe in me now? Let's, let's not prove our faith by the miracles that we see. Let's prove them by the resistance that we meet. That's putting to, to the proof or putting to the touchstone. So let's see how they did. Well, they saw him walking on the lake, and the first thing they thought it was a ghost. Uh, you know, might be, might not be. But they've been straining for quite a time. I'm sure their bodies are weary and their minds are weary as well. They cried out, and this is verse uh, 49 again. They cried out because they saw, because they all saw him and were terrified. It'd been one thing to kind of look and say, you know, is that a, a chicken or you know what is that standing in the water? No, they saw it. And they thought it was a ghost, and they were terrified. Fear had overcome their faith. They were going against opposition. They see a ghost, and they break down. They break down in their faith. Let me say this. Sometimes it has been more beneficial for us, for really for our own selves as a means of discipline, to see ourselves really put to the proof. Nothing injures somebody spiritually more than spiritual pride, to think you're higher or think you're more than what you really are. Jesus allows things to come into our life. On what frequency? It all depends on what he determines. But he allows things to come in our life to be more of an oil check, 
to put to the proof our, our faith and show us exactly where we are spiritually. Therefore, you know exactly what you need to do. Okay, I have this area to work on. If, if the disciples had come away from this and, and did not realize that they were deficient in the faith area, then they're totally blind to who they really were in their spiritual condition. Verse 50. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage. He's got an exclamation point. I'm sure he was yelling it at them, like, Get it through your thick heads. Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand who Jesus was by performing this miracle. That he was this source of peace. He was this source of comfort and power for them. Regardless of whether he was in the boat or out of the boat. No different than when the centurion walked up and said, Hey, you don't need to come to my house for uh, my soldier to be healed. Just say the word. You have that power. The centurion understood it. Right here, the disciples did not. Let's go to First Peter chapter 1. Now, sticking with the gold thing. Gold is number one. This symbolizes what? Deity. <laughs> it's been a while. That's why we have Wednesday nights. So gold symbolizes deity, but also thinking more in a natural sense. Is it easily found? No. It's a gem that has to be dug out of this earth, dug from, from the, the corruptible means. Remember, the earth is cursed. It's been cursed since Adam fell. But it's this precious jewel that is dug out of, the, out of this cursed ground and then declared to be this royal deity-type item that men wear on their own flesh. How ironic. Um, so anyway, here Peter is going to relate gold <clears throat> to our faith. Faith is something that, first of all, that Jesus gives to us in certain amounts and proportions, but also is something that we seek after to strengthen and further develop. As we're made aware of, like we talked about putting to the proof stone or the touchstone, as we're made of, aware of its deficiencies, therefore we want to add to our faith what is lacking. First Peter 1.3 Praise be to God and the Father and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. If there's ever anything ever getting you down about the cares and worries of the world creeping upon you, as simple as it may seem, especially when it comes to finances, that, first of all, Jesus does have the ability to multiply my few into many, like he did with the loaves and the fishes. But also that these things are very, very temporary. I will survive them. I will get through them. Jesus will meet my needs. But I have something of much greater worth awaiting me 
whenever I am resurrected along with uh, everyone else who believes in Jesus. Verse 4. And into inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power. Quick quiz. Where else is that symbolism made? Shielded by faith. It's in Paul's description of the armor of God. Take up the shield of faith. So faith is not only an item of deity, which or item of, of like gold, symbolizing gold, but it's also a shield of, of, uh, to deflect the arrows of the enemies, the shield of faith. There's nothing. If we have a, a group here, uh, let's say of 20, 19 people can be down in the mully grubs. And all it takes is one person to stand up and raise up that armor guard of faith to sway the entire people within the crowd and help them realize, hey guys, Jesus is bigger than a situation. He can overcome it. And therefore, by that guy saying those words, demonstrating his faith, picking up his shield of faith, it's not just something I do internally. That, that is one use. But it's also something I do with my mouth. Whenever I begin to, <clears throat> to speak negative things, I lower that guard of faith. I then, therefore, allow the enemy to shoot his arrows and to puncture me because I'm not speaking what is positive. And sometimes that includes not saying anything at all. So, once again, we see the faith demonstrated as a shield. But who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. In what? God's power that's going to be revealed in the last time. In this, we, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. There's that word trials again. That direct word, trials, the way it's used there in the Greek form, is the exact same way it's used in James. These external circumstances used to expose or uh, experiment or, or, or proof our faith. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We know that we are be being saved. We just aren't, it's not a one-time event. It's something that continually happens, continually progresses into something greater. Uh, let's go to Romans 5. As y'all are there, I'll, I'll read the corresponding verse in James. It's one chapter, one, chapter 1, verse 4. Perseverance must finish its work so that it may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, in Romans 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 2. Cass, if you could read it. Verse 2 through 5. 
Go up to one. Now, it's pretty obvious to see that it's hard to get to that end product if it never begins with the initial product, which is perseverance. Perseverance over what? Trials. If it were not for resistance, if it were not for trials, I wouldn't develop character and I wouldn't develop hope. Now, I have an initial hope of something to come as I'm resurrected, but also I have an initial hope, knowing from God's word that he is faithful, to deliver me out of circumstances. He, he will not give me more than I cannot handle. And that he's able to deliver me from any type of temptation or even trial. But, or in, in, in addition to, without that initial trial, hope will not be as genuine or will not be as valuable, valuable to me as if it uh, had never happened. It's no different than... Uh, I mean, I could, I could hope for a car. I could know that my dad would eventually give me a car. But if I had to work and toil and labor and produce some type of funds to produce that car, if, by the time I get close to the, the amount of money that I need to purchase it, my hope to have that car is much stronger. It's much more refined. It's much more developed. Uh, let's go to John, I'm sorry, Hebrews 5. Verse 11. Actually, let's go to verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. No servant is greater than his master. If Jesus endured this, I must expect, I have to ingrain it in my, in my mind, that I must expect these type of situations to come to me as well. Maybe not to the same degree as Jesus did, but that they will come regardless. Because in the same way, we must learn obedience from what we suffer. Because we saw it right there in Romans how perseverance produces character and character hope. It builds maturity into us. And once made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Now, I'll just kind of take a little sidetrack. Faith, whenever 
the Word of God comes into my heart or into my mind, I grab a hold to it. By grabbing a hold to it is the, the act of faith that I believe in what God has spoken to my heart. Once faith is put into effect, what did God tell Abraham when, faith, when he acted on his faith? It was credited to him as righteousness. Faith is the, the initial key to moving into righteousness. It's by faith that we accept Jesus' sacrifice, who he is, to be over us, and also for his, his kingship, his reign, to be 100% over our lives. By doing so, by giving our lives, we demonstrate our faith and our actions and everything we do from the moment we're born again until the day this flesh dies. And by doing so, we get to participate in the righteousness that Jesus is able to bring by his blood and his, and his sacrifice of himself to cover every single one of our sins. Continue on. But solid food is for the mature. And here's the key. Who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. When studying the, uh, the military, either by watching the History Channel or I read a, a few books, it does a soldier no good to sit around and read about warfare and learn of his tactics and even his weapons by just mere looking in, into a book. That is only part of it. He then takes that knowledge that he reads from that book and gets within his teaching, and they have mock scenarios. One time, or I think maybe three times a year, the Marines will do a mock warfare and have the good guys and the bad guys. They'll break out the tanks. They'll break out the helicopters, have aerial attacks, the full-blown deal. They do that th three times a year to simulate it. Why? To put into practice what they've been trained by books and small lessons every day. Why? So that when they become mature, they're able to correctly handle what's been taught them and achieve the mission or achieve the objective they set out to do. I've seen people come into ministry ahead of their time. They did not take the word and constantly use it. Though by being a part of a congregation, they had all the tools they, they really needed to stay saved and then maybe you know produce some kind of fruit for Jesus. But when it was moving into the next level of leading others to produce fruit and producing mass amounts of fruit, they had holes in their armor. They did not grab a hold of the word as, as fully as they could have and use it on a constant basis. First of all, I can't use anything I don't have. They didn't seek it, therefore they didn't have it, therefore they never put it into use, and they never were mature in that area. When the devil attacked them in that one of many weaknesses, they fell quick, very quick. Lives are destroyed, marriages are destroyed, kids are destroyed. So this is more for people who are listening to this tape. If Jesus is leading you into ministry or he has brought you into ministry, now be, be very well conscious and aware that you must absorb everything you can in the Word and eagerly seek after God in the Word to add to your faith knowledge and goodness and brotherly kindness so that nothing in your armor is missing and then the devil has very little opportunity to easily pick you off. Let's move on to John chapter 15. 
in James 1, verse 5, I'll go ahead and read it while you are that, John 15. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. It's pretty simple. Who gives generously to all without finding fault. Who is the number one person in our lives that finds fault of who we are? Ourselves. There's nothing more critical of myself than myself or my own brain. If I kneel down to pray, sometimes I'll say it's the devil. For years I did. I said, the devil's telling me I'm an idiot. The devil's telling me I've been sinful today and I can't pray. Sometimes that is true. But more than likely it's yourself. It's your wrong thinking. Or you have, you're, have a guilty conscience about something that your heart is condemning you about. So going back to what, what we preached last week about uh, intercessory prayer, whenever we're getting ourselves ready to come into the presence of God by focusing on Jesus and unfocusing from the things of this world, part of it is washing our, our mind with the Word. And we kind of do that in worship. As we sing the words in worship, we're, we're taking uh, the images and we're also taking the encouragements of the words of the song and washing ourselves with them. And that's why you'll notice the first couple of songs in worship, or sometimes just the first one, it's, it's tough. It feels kind of awkward. It feels like you're, uh, you know, you're just starting off on a train ride. But by midway through, you, you've gotten a lot of the junk to the side. If not, it needs to be. <laughs> but you got a lot of junk off to the side. And, and now you're, you're moving deeper and easier into the presence of God. So, uh, going back to the James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, ta- blown and tossed by the wind. The man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Now that last part, in all he does, is very key to this. Many years of teaching have preached that, and they've taken this, this verse way out of context into the hyperface syndrome of I have to basically rev myself up and block out any form of doubt whatsoever to enter my mind. And if it does then I will not receive it from God. And a lot of the applications of this was towards something that they really wanted for themselves, such as a car. They find a nice car in a car lot, they want to believe God for the car. So they go up to it, they lay hands on it, they anoint it with oil, and they believe that if they, they have faith strong enough and block out every form of doubt, that they will have that car. And guess what happens? They don't get the car, then they beat themselves up, because they begin to, to criticize themselves and, and say, I'm lesser than because I allowed myself to doubt this. That they treat this scripture as some type of formula to get what you want from God or get what, what your eyes see and what your flesh wants. So by no means is it a formula. What it is is just a warning. It's, it's really dealing with a, with a person who is unstable in all he does. More than likely, this guy is not only wishy-washy with uh, his, his prayer life and doubting, but he's also wishy-washy with everything else in his, in, in his walk, like he says, in all that he does. They'll come to church you know, two or three times and then be gone for six months. 
oh, man, you know, I backslid and I got into this and that and my friends came around, blah, blah, blah. You know, don't, don't expect to get anything from God of what you're eagerly seeking after because you're double-minded. You know, one when a doctrine comes in and blows you this way and then your friends come in and blow you the other way. You're easily tossed. You're not built upon the rock. You're not built upon the truth. So in John 15, 5 through 8, Jennifer, you could read that. Verse, yeah, yeah, to be my disciples. Verse 7 is, is the key. And going back to what we said earlier, they had, you had people in the hyperfaith movement that would take God's word, manipulate it to get their own selfish desires, or to try and accomplish something that they thought was God's will. Well, what would have cured that? Any guess? A better understanding of God's word which would give them a better understanding of God's will. This is the key. If you remain in me, number one, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish. If he would have said, ask whatever you wish, then we treat Jesus like a genie in the bottle. But no, I have to remain in him. That means fellowship with him. I could just read the word, but reading the word alone is not going to cut it. It's also having fellowship with his spirit. Having fellowship with the Spirit and also the body is putting the Word into constant use. Because as you mingle with the body, certain things happen. You get to minister to people, people minister to you. And also you're around those that it's not easy to be around, but you know you want to be. So Jesus used that to your benefit as well. But it's using the Word constantly to help make you more mature. By doing so, someone who's mature has what? Good judgment. When you have good and sound judgment that's biblically based, then you're able to ask certain things that you know will please Jesus and you know that he desires. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. I speak what I I hear from what he tells me. He was in direct communion and fellowship with him. He was receiving, uh, or when he went on the mountain to pray alone, he was having fellowship with him, but also... He would take his words and let them come through him. So the Father's words remained in Jesus. Jesus was the embodiment of the word. Likewise in us, as we progress in God's will, and we want to know what God's will is, the first thing to do is not to implement a formula and force God to reveal it or force it to happen. The first thing to do is to what? Remain in him or get close to him by fellowship, dive off into his word, even though that particular word may not specifically deal with your situation. Because, um, you know, when we were looking to go to Houston, I didn't look for the word Houston in my concordance and find out, okay, Jesus, speak to me through your word, Matt, go to Houston. I don't see that in the scripture. No, I could study about anything. Jesus' spirit is able to connect and reveal his will to me any shape or form by reading through the word. He is the author of it. 
And he can definitely bring it to life and make it a, a double-edged sword to separate soul and spirit and joint and marrow in my own body. And therefore, help me understand what is and what is not God's will. He, that's, that's awesome. That's good. Like I said, his desires become our desires. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We jump back to James chapter 1, verse 9. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. Because he will pass away like a wild flower. Have you guys ever seen those by the, uh, the interstate? But it seems like one day, one day they're there after a good shower. The next day, they're gone. They're pretty, but... They pass fairly quick. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. There's a parable that Jesus talks about. It's the four types of uh, seeds or four types of soils. And one of them has a plant that rises up. It, t- it has taken root, but it's taken shallow root in, uh, on a rocky surface. The sun comes up, scorches it. It doesn't have deep enough root- roots to tap into the, the life well or the water in the ground, and therefore it dies. It passes away. Jesus directly uh, corresponds or tells what that, that references into. It's, when the sun rises, it's persecution, but also it can be related to trials. When these pieces of resistance, like the disciples experienced straining against the oars, it's like the same type of trials that James is mentioning. When these things come, those who have shallow roots will easily pass away. And going back to what we just referenced in, uh, in Hebrews, uh, was it Hebrews? No. In First Corinthians? No, uh, it was in Hebrews. By constant use of the word, we become mature. Well, also constant use enables you to have a deeper grasp on the word, therefore being able to pull more riches and nourishment and water from God's word and are able to survive persecution, trials, external sufferings, and even overcome the internal ones as well. Um, Let me go to 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. That was my excuse for making C's and D's in high school. Where is the wise man who is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? There's nothing like watching the TV and listening to the, the, the psych, psychologist trying to describe, you know, what the root cause analysis is for somebody being a homosexual. It's this, you know, 
damage early in their childhood and what have you, and very may well have been, well have been for the majority of people who are uh, homosexual have experienced sexual damage early in their childhood. But as well as we know, there's also a spiritual influence behind it that the world cannot see. And that is foolish to them. It's absolutely foolish. We're ever seeing this back to James. I, I drove around within Houston and I saw some of the these rich homes, these beautiful homes. And I even went into some little shops and, and areas where these people stay and, and shop. And there's a certain air. There's a certain status that they try. It seems like they're trying to maintain at all times and really at all costs. And it's that I have it all together. You know, my bills are paid for and I have thousands of dollars left over to spend. It's I have arrived at this status of perfection. Now, they may, they may never say it. I'm sure there are people who do have money that don't actually feel that way. But that's the feeling, the air that surrounds the very wealthy. Well, there's always a tendency for those of you like myself that don't have money to feel oppressed or intimidated by that because they have reason to feel like they have it all together. Look, look at what they have. That is foolishness to God. For us, we have the riches and we have the wealth of who Jesus is in us. We have at work in us the very power that rose Jesus from the dead. Money cannot buy that. We have in us the riches of God's word that can set a man free. People spend thousands of dollars trying to get themselves off of crack and cocaine, and they can't kick the habit. We have in us the very word of God that can do it in two minutes, the very power of God that money cannot buy. This is, these are the riches of God that he has placed in us. You minister to somebody's life, you speak the word into their life and love on them, it can change the course of their life forever. And you never know who they will affect. What we have in us is very, very powerful. But more than that, it's very, very wealthy. We do have it together because I've submitted everything I am to the person that holds everything together. It may be at times when in the natural to the rich or to that mindset that I'm a total fool. You know, why do things without, you know, why move to Houston without having 40 grand in the bank to, to ride or cush on? No. I sell everything. I would sell everything I have to follow Jesus if that's what's required of me. That's easy to say. It is harder to do. But my heart and attitude is set is bound and determined to do that. That very thing I know pleases God. And I know that that's my life's goal, is that I want to please Jesus. And by doing so, I get to participate in the wealth of who He is. Being wealthy doesn't necessarily mean having a bunch of things. Being wealthy in Jesus does include, like we said, the riches of the Word, the power of His resurrection in our, in our bodies. In the natural sense, meaning that Jesus will provide every single one of our needs, whether we're aware of it or not. If it's a basket of groceries at our doorstep or a check in the mail for someone that we haven't heard from in years or never even met, Jesus will always provide for my needs. The key is, is that it's never done 
by solely my strength. It enables me, or I'm sorry, disables me for taking credit of it and removes the temptation for having the pride of life. And, and, I'm, and I can imagine it, it. It gets to be very easy to have pride in the things you've accomplished when there's a visible evidence of them. Uh, so uh, I'll continue on. Verse, uh, verse 20, 24. I'm, I'm sorry. A little bit further up. Verse 20. Where is the wise man? Who is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of, the, of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Jesus crucified. And what is that? It's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Let's turn to uh, Acts 12. Look here. Can you get five minutes? Five minutes? All right, that's ten. <laughs> uh, while you're holding it there, I'm going to read the remainder of, uh, of James 1. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. Blessed when he has stood the test. He will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. When mentioned in verse 2, that word trial means to be put to the proof by external. This word is directly parallel and is the internal sense. So no one should say, God is tempting me to do evil from within me. But God will test you on the external as a form of resistance to prove your faith. Um, do not be deceived, my dear. Uh, I'm sorry. Let me go back up. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Nothing more dangerous than feeling alone. When you feel alone, you begin to be enticed. By what? The temptations of your evil desires. Of your flesh. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. That's why it's so important whenever the thought comes in or the desire to think about something uh, unholy or not pleasing to God, crush it, demolish it, treat it as if it's a, a, a nuclear bomb about to go off. Get rid of it as ASAP. Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my brothers, my dear brothers. 
every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Whenever you're not feeling of value, remember, you are valuable to Jesus because you are part of the first fruits, first of, of this in the entire harvest he's going to gather in, something specially selected. That's basically what you boil first fruits down to, a good part of the, the whole batch. Somebody said, um, to kind of put things in perspective as far as salvation goes, you're sitting in uh, Tiger Stadium, uh, seats about 92,000 people. Imagine if you were one out of the 150 or so pulled out of that or chosen out of that crowd to come down and receive a gift. That's equivalent to you accepting and participating in the gospel of Jesus Christ and being saved. Out of these thousands and thousands of people that are out there, many hear the call, few respond to it. You respond to it by getting off of your seat and coming down and receive it. But that, I mean, when someone first told that to me, that put into a, a great perspective of how valuable you feel and special you are that Jesus came and sought after you to come. Because, I mean, the, the, Jesus is very plain. Wide is the way that leads to destruction. And many, many people follow it. And we are part of those who have been chosen to walk the narrow. Verse... Uh, 19. My, my, I'm sorry, still in James. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. So it's hard for some to do. Slow to speak. That's my problem. <laughs> and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Whenever I was born again, three months later, I was baptized. I read that scripture and in conjunction with others. But it was that get rid. It produced an urgency in me to remove anything and everything that reminded me of my worldly life that I knew could possibly be a temptation or even just a reminder of what I used to be and do. I treated uh, uh, everything of equal value. That means it had no value in my eyes, no matter what its material worth was. So in the same way, I, I constantly step back and really put myself to that touchstone and, I'm, and measure myself with sober judgment and say, is there anything that I'm letting in or anything that I'm doing as a habit that has the potential. It may not be in full fruition now, but it has the potential to be damaging to my walk and producing me death, the eventual product. Verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It's like the plaque we have up here. Practice out there, would you have practiced in here? Performed in here. I'm sorry. Uh, 
Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. It's very tempting, but sometimes when we've left church, we go to Piccadilly, someone cuts in front of us in line, and we react out of the flesh. Maybe not to them, but maybe under my breath. <gasps> God sees that? Yes, he does. We will give an account for what? Every idle word we say. That's no different. I was just in the setting reading and studying who I was in light of God's word. I stepped right out and forget it. I, I did not perform or did not practice out there what we have performed in here. And therefore, I look at myself, make sober judgment, and it's on my checklist to correct. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law, that gives freedom. The imperfect law, which was given to the Israelites, did not give freedom. It gave bondage. It gave death, which we tend to do our, to ourselves. I know uh, I did as an early Christian. Is I put all these laws on myself so I wouldn't sin. Well, eventually I had to grow out of that because it didn't bring me into freedom. It brought me into legalism. Perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it. He will be blessed in what he does. Verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. That's a very, very powerful statement. Religion that our God, our, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. It's not to... See, he's equating, if you can't keep a tight rein on your tongue, your, your religion is worthless. So what religion does God accept? Not necessarily what comes from the mouth, but demonstration and your actions of what's in your heart. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the word. I'm sure that word polluted has a more negative connotation than stated here, but you can imagine um, I'll skip Acts 12. But can, can y'all see in James 1 how how powerful it is and how many nuggets? I mean, I could I could really break down and go on for hours of each section of that, and it cross references other things in the Word that that absolutely back it up or magnify it. So uh, let's stand to our feet and we're going to pray once again. Yeah.